March 31st, 2002. Australian Janelle Patton, 29, is found brutally murdered off a picturesque road on the remote territory of Norfolk Island. The young woman had moved to the island for a fresh start and built a life for herself that was soon cut short. The subsequent police investigation would soon uncover a complex web of relationships and an island full of suspects. And despite a conviction in the case, many question its legitimacy to this day. What is the truth of what happened to Janelle Patton? Sources for this episode include The Daily Telegraph, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The LA Times, The Economist, The Guardian, The Australian, The ABC, The New Zealand Herald, The Brisbane Times, Reuters, Brian Bruce Documentaries and Dateline NBC. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 156 of Unknown Passage a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I hope you're all doing well. Our heatwave has just passed. Maybe it's the last one for summer. Who knows? I was very hot. (laughs) Um, So I have a few new patrons to welcome. Um, Dave F, Miranda K, Natalie R and Nancy E this week. Thank you so much. And thank you also for your PayPal support, Grace. I also just want to say congratulations to patron Laura S who had a beautiful baby boy called Luca a couple of weeks ago um, and she's very kind of sleepless at the moment. So another patron baby. Welcome to this crazy world, Luca. I love that name. So this week will be a two-parter. I'm actually moving away for one week um, because I've done quite a lot of patron location requests in a row uh, for a case of my own choosing. One that few outside of Australia or New Zealand would know, a place that I don't think many people know, not even Australians or New Zealanders, and one that's been on my big spreadsheet to do kind of since I started the podcast. And it's a bit funny because it's an Australian woman who was murdered on a Australian territory island, but I believe that it fits the angle of the podcast because very few will ever go to this territory. My father is the only person I know who has been there. Um, and it really is not close to Australia. <laughs> it's it's like 1,600 kilometres from Australia. It's an interesting, it's interesting how it worked out to be in Australian territory. It's really closer to like, you know, Tahiti. Um, and so it's, it's very kind of a very different place, maybe one of the most unique places we'll go to. And that's interesting considering it's only uh, eight kilometres by five kilometres. Uh, so, and everything for this will be in kilometers and kilos and stuff because it's Aussie. So I do remember the Janelle Patton case happening. I, I, and about a decade ago, um, I watched a documentary about her case and I became quite fascinated by it. I, I liken it in a funny way to the, uh, Oog de la Plaza case in the sense that someone is killed and the, becomes this web of potential people because the media decides to focus on the salacious details of this person's life. And so I kept coming kind of back to Oog and I felt like Oog got a bit of short shift, but not as much as Janelle in terms of the life choices, because Janelle was just kind of slaughtered for her life choices in the media, like being a woman. When you read about this case, you like with Oog, it's well, he was a bit of a cad and a bit of a lad. But with Janelle, it's it's like the terminology is is way different. It's like, you know, she had affairs with married men. She was bossy. She was, you know, boisterous. And I was kind of like, oh, this is bad because of all the people I've covered on this podcast, I probably relate in terms of things that have happened in my life and choices I've made, all kinds of different things to Janelle Patton more than ever, you know. And that's the most important thing I think when looking at these. Um, and that's why I have a couple of issues with some documentaries that have been made on this, which I'll get into because it's, you're not looking at it through a lens of looking away from her choices and just looking at the facts. They're just hyper-focused on her life choices. And so I felt at the time when I watched the documentary, 
I knew what I knew. And I had to strip it all back to do this case this week and to look back into it again. And I kind of realised that with life and with experience, my opinion of what happened changed and I sometimes picture things happening in my head as I'm putting together a case and I can kind of see it happening. It's kind of funny. And I have different photographic kind of things in my mind of potentials and seeing the person, I can almost see the person doing this particular thing. But when I first looked at this case years ago, Janelle was 29 and I was in my, like, I was probably 20 and she seemed so much older than me and so much more kind of mature and she'd had all this life experience and I felt I understood it. But when you look back and now I'm way older than Janelle was when she was killed and I've had life experiences since I I looked at it last time, that it, it has kind of shaped what I think and I can understand Janelle a lot more. Um, and I, I do kind of, I like to pride myself on the ability to, no matter who I'm looking at, except for Emma Gressa last week, even though, yes, you can see yourself in anybody, I'm, I'm, I can be bossy and kind of abrupt and upfront and things like that. And we all, I guess, Emma Gressa had those qualities. I think it's important to see yourself in each of, each of these people, good or bad. Um, so I've been following the Nicole, uh, Nicola Bully case in the UK and I have a lot to say on that, but I'm not going to get into it because it doesn't fit the podcast. But I've noticed that they released the information about Nicola Bully, the dog walker who went missing and her body has now been found and hopefully whatever the truth is of what happened to her comes out. There's a lot of issues with that um, and a lot of questions people have, rightfully so. Um, but when they came out about a week before she was found, they said that she was an alcoholic and that she was menopausal and she was experiencing um, psychological effects of perimenopause or menopause, which, which happens and is really common. And I thought that's really interesting because you never hear them come out and say about men, you know, <laughs> Um, he was suffering from erectile dysfunction or, you know, it was affecting his mindset. And uh, and now the police are being investigated, the Lancashire police, for releasing that information because it wasn't relevant to finding her, really. And I just thought, yeah, that's just a stain on her legacy that will forever be there when you Google her name. And Janelle Patton has this similar kind of dirty stain thanks to coverage of who she was and how she conducted her life. But as with the Ugdella Plaza case, I, it is incredibly important, I think, just to show it warts and all exactly what she was like. And I'm kind of thankful that a number of her friends kind of said, oh, this is how she was and we're not going to lie about that kind of thing. That's why I chose this case this week as Nicholas' case coverage has reminded me a lot of Janelle Patton and this kind of media slandering. Um, so Janelle's murder was tantalising press fodder for years. It actually continues to occasionally pop up in the media, particularly in Australia. Um, and... They kind of go along the lines of she was a troubled young woman with a series of failed relationships. She moved from the big city of Sydney in Australia to a remote, tiny and very close-knit um, distant island territory of Australia that few have heard of, let alone will ever visit for a fresh start. She is then murdered, the first murder on the island in 150 years, there was just over 2,000 people on the island at the time, 17 of which were residents. The rest is tourism. And many of the just over 2,000 people on the island at the time do not cooperate with police with the subsequent investigation, despite the authorities being in the unique position of knowing exactly who was on the island at the time, because as much as it's an Australian territory, they still have immigration and things like that. It's very interesting how it works. Um, it's kind of like an Agatha Christie murder mystery, kind of like a murder on the Orient Express kind of intrigue or a locked room mystery of sorts, a closed island mystery. Yet 21 years on, the truth of what happened is still unsettled despite having um, quite a plethora of forensic evidence to go off. Um, and for some, at least, in the eyes of the law, it's settled who did it. But in the eyes of a lot of people, um, including Brian Bruce, who made a documentary that I watched and I will talk about at some point on this, um, it's still open to speculation. Many books have been written about the Janelle Patton case. I have not read any of them, but I've read a hell of a lot of media from the time that it happened to now. Um, 
She's been the topic of salacious newspaper headlines. The books include titles like Island of Secrets, The Fatal Floor, Dark Paradise and The Newcomer. She's been the subject of true crime TV shows. But actually, surprisingly, when I was trying to fill in gaps of who Janelle actually was and details beyond these kind of scarce um this, you know, basic details, these surface details that you get where everything's summed up in a headline. The best coverage came from American sources, <laughs> uh, The Economist, The LA Times, and particularly NBC Dateline, which did an episode on Janelle, which really surprised me, but I didn't watch the episode. I read the transcript because I couldn't get hold of the episode. And the, it was really, really good. I, I enjoy reading the transcripts of the episodes. They spoke to her parents. They spoke to her friends. And they kind of painted a way better picture than anyone else because sadly through all the coverage of this Janelle partners a person what she liked, um, what she, what got her excited, what made her laugh. These are all things I want to know, um, what kind of sense of humour they have. You never get any of that with, with most victims. You'll generally get it with the perpetrators and the focus goes on them. It's all secondary or absent, the more salacious details of a case because the media loves sensationalism and they love gore. And when it bleeds, it leads, as journalists, you know, say. I also finally watched a series, a documentary called The Investigator. It's a series. It's made by a guy called Brian Bruce, and he did one called Who Killed Janelle Patton. It's only like forty minutes long or something. I've it, I've seen it back in the day when I looked into this, I believe, because um, it was really familiar. He calls into question a lot of the investigation and he looks at it as an older man, way different than I do as like a younger woman, which is another thing, like it's just a generational gap where we're, t- we're going to naturally look at things differently. Um, and as a woman, you also look at things, I believe, I know I'm rambling, but you look at when it's a woman who's killed, you and you've been in instances where men have been creepy or been you've been harassed or something like that, you, you see it totally differently to how like a 60-year-old uh, hard-baked career journalist male sees things. <laughs> so, so I think it was really good. It gives you a really good look at the actual island because he goes to all the places. Um, but I have a few issues and I'll probably get into that in part two of this episode. So, As always, I want to start at the beginning. I want to talk a little bit about who the lady in question is, Janelle Patton. Janelle Louise Patton was born in June of 1972. And if she was alive today, she would be turning 51 this year. March 31st this year will mark 21 years since 29-year-old Janelle was killed on Easter Sunday on the remote island territory of Norfolk Island uh, in 2002. Janelle died three months short of her 30th birthday. Janelle came from Sydney. You know, Australia's, everyone knows Sydney, Australia's most populous and well-known city in terms of all of its famous landmarks, although Melbourne is superior other than, like, our government, just, you know. Melbourne and Sydney, we have, like, a well-known rivalry. Um, Sydney is located, it's the... It's the um, it's the major city in New South Wales, which is the state above me on the east coast of Australia. Um, I doubt growing up in a city like Sydney that Janelle ever thought she would end up living on a remote island 1,600 kilometres northeast of Sydney um, or that her life would end there, but it did. To describe Janelle, there's a, f- a few pictures out there of her, a fair few. Um, she's slim. Um, kind of average height. She's very fit. She was very into physical fitness. She was always active. Uh, she had an active job and she liked exercising on the side and was in sporting groups and things. She's got long brown hair, um, a really kind of beaming smile. She always kind of looks um, like she's dressed. A lot of the photos she's in, her, she's got a sunnies on her head and she's sunglasses and she's um, she's kind of in like, you know, athleisure wear, athletic wear. So she's a really attractive woman and I think that probably added to all the salacious headlines as well, which tends to happen with the media. 
But in 1999, the year before Sydney would actually hold the Olympics, um, at the age of 26, Janelle decided to do what many young people do, particularly Australians, and that I truly recommend because we're so, we're so isolated our country from the rest of the world that a lot of Australians, like I talked about, I've talked about so many times, like most recently, Lucas Fowler, you know, when we travel, we travel far or we do, we go for a while um, because it just feels very isolated as you kind of get into your twenties and it's the peak time to do something. Most youth visas are available up until the age of 30. You want to get the most out of it before you don't have responsibilities and things like that. And that was, she decided to take the plunge, but she decided to start a new life somewhere new, but actually somewhere that you really don't hear about people deciding to move to. It's very kind of generational, this place. That's why it's so interesting. So depending on the source you refer to, most sources very much gloss over Janelle's reason for moving. Um, they say she had a breakup that really affected her and she just wanted to get away. She didn't want to run into ex-boyfriends in Sydney. Um, I don't think it really matters at the age of 26, like what your reason is. Um, but it was a catalyst for a life change for Janelle. Before that, she worked in finance in Sydney in the city. So this was going to be a major shift, a major sea change, as you put it, um, moving to Norfolk Island, um, an island that under 2,000 people live on that only spans um, 35 square kilometres and is 1,600 kilometres from where she's from. Janelle really wasn't running away from anything. She was super close to her parents, Ron and Carol. Um, she'd actually first heard of Norfolk Island from Ron and Carol, according to Dateline, because they'd had their honeymoon there 30 years before and, and they kind of, she'd seen pictures of it and albeit it was 30 years before. And Carol Patton, her mother, told Dateline, um, quote, I said, oh, I don't think it's really your scene, Janelle. It's very quiet, you know. And she said, well, maybe that's what I need, unquote. So we'll talk about Norfolk Island, but the only person I know that has been to Norfolk about four years ago was my dad. I think he went in 20, actually 2016. And it's right up his alley, older man, him and my stepmom went, and it's because they go to very kind of off-the-wall places that aren't normal. Like they don't go to Bali or Thailand for a holiday. Like they'll go to a random place that no one's ever heard of, like Norfolk Island, Lord Howe Island. Um, and my dad loves Australia. He loves the landscape. He He's really like proud Australian. He loves the countryside particularly. He loves weird country towns. He's in one at the moment, which is why I needed a breakdown of Norfolk Island from him, his time there. And I can't get on to him because he can only stand on a jetty right now to get soul service where he is. He is in this random river location in a national park somewhere in the state above mine. Um, but then he'll be back in service and hopefully I'll have his breakdown by part two because I've told him I need it. Um, but I do remember him saying like it was beautiful. It was really close knit. Everyone was really friendly bit weird kind of vibe because of as I'll get into it it's got this extremely close-knit community where a lot of people are related uh, which is really interesting um, but my stepmom even though I'm in my 30s she still always picks me up a present from wherever she goes so I've got a Norfolk Island tea towel <laughs> which is actually presents that I love getting I don't know what you guys would call it somewhere else um, in America um, the thing you use to dry your dishes um, and it's got like birds all over it and um, I got a really nice candle from Norfolk Island that was made on Norfolk Island and she always does that no matter where she goes because <laughs> she's got really good taste in candles and tea towels. So Janelle was really close to her parents and her family and as I said her parents are Ron and Carol and coincidentally her parents were actually visiting her on Norfolk Island at the time that she was murdered. They'd only been there for less than 24 hours. Um, obviously, they've been ruled out. They were actually the ones that raised the alarm, thankfully. Otherwise, if they hadn't have been there, it would have been ages, I think, maybe a couple of days before someone raised the alarm and it would have had to have been Janelle's job. So at 26, Janelle applied for and was hired for a job as a restaurant manager 
at a hotel on Norfolk Island and she flew 1,600 kilometres to the Australian Territory located in the South Pacific to start a new life for however long. And by the time that she was killed, when she was 29, she'd been there for about two and a half years. So it's really important to talk about Norfolk Island a bit right now um, because just the way it's set up, it's a very unique, interesting place and learning about the island will paint a picture of why this investigation may have been a bit muddled and a lot of people may not have wanted to get involved in it, particularly talking about the murder of a woman who came from somewhere else and um, I'm just saying, you know, a lot of people may have known people involved. Um, so Norfolk Island is a very tiny but interesting place. It's a subtropical island located in the South Pacific, but it's actually part of Australia, technically, although very few Australians will ever go there. It's located about 1,600 kilometres from Sydney and just over 1,000 kilometres northwest of Auckland, New Zealand. The island is only 8 kilometres by 5 kilometres. Looking at a map, you'd actually wonder geographically why it isn't part of New Zealand or New Zealand Territory because it looks closer, but the time, the flight time is exactly the same technically. Um, it's from Sydney, it's 2.5 hours flight and from Auckland, it's about 2.5 hours flight as well. Now, when Australians fly to Norfolk Island, it's it's interesting because it's a territory of ours, so it's classified as a domestic flight. It's kind of like Americans flying from the US mainland to the US Virgin Islands. When Australians fly here, they can move here. They don't need a visa. Um, it's considered a domestic flight, so you don't need a passport or visa, but you're, you're flying across the Pacific Ocean. Um, so it's weird because it's out near New Caledonia. Um, it's essentially halfway between Auckland and New Caledonia. But one of the reasons why I believe that a lot of people wouldn't go here other than the fact that it's tiny and it just doesn't have enough to interest a lot of people is that because it's such a low, remote, strange place, the flights are really expensive. Qantas flies there um, kind of daily to the capital, which is called Kingston. To give you an idea of flights, it's very expensive to fly around Australia, right? It'll cost me like $200 to fly to Sydney, which is an hour's flight from Melbourne. Whereas in Europe, because they have a lot of cheaper airlines and EasyJet and um, Ryanair and all that, you can, I flew to Prague for like $40 equivalent, but we don't have that in Australia, which is a major issue that Australians have. So for me to fly to Perth, it would cost me the equivalent um, of flying to like Hong Kong or to Thailand and back. So when Australians travel, it's cheaper for us just to travel somewhere abroad because the flights are cheaper than to fly within Australia. And Norfolk Island is no exception because the flights are more expensive to fly to Norfolk Island than they are to fly to Thailand return. And it's only two hours away and Thailand is like nine hours from where I live in Melbourne. And so it's around $900 Australian return on average to fly to Norfolk Island because it's only Qantas and I believe like a local carrier that flies there. I believe you can fly Air New Zealand from Auckland um, and it's around the same cost. So it's just not cost effective. So they need to make it more cost effective if they want more tourism. But the capital of Norfolk Island is Kingston and today it only has around 1,800 permanent residents, which has kind of stayed the same for decades and decades and decades. Now, a brief history of the island and how it works is important for context of just how many, how people came here and how many of the same descendants still remain. So this is going to be a very brief kind of breakdown. <laughs> We've talked a bit about Australian history, although I haven't gone into detail too much about settlement and things like that. But in 1774, Captain James Cook, who would also settle Australia, discovered the island, Norfolk Island, at the, around the same time. And um, this would be, you know, the British. And he would be the first European to ever set foot on Norfolk Island. Now, by the time James Cook got to Norfolk Island, the island was empty. It had once been home to East Polynesians of the region who had since moved on to other islands. So essentially, James Cook like settled Norfolk Island as part of the British 
you know, taking Australia and things like that. I'm not going to get into that. Like it's controversial, but it's got nothing to do with this. So don't take offense. Let's stay on topic. Um, and they decided that they were going to use Norfolk Island as a penal colony as well. So by 1788, when Europeans were landing in Australia and its territories and its territories, including Norfolk Island, and they were setting them up as penal colonies for like, kind of like the worst of the worst. British prisons were over, overflowing with prisoners and they would be put on these terrible ships, which I'm literally reading a book about right now and sent out for hard labour. Um, and they were the worst of the worst. Now, the first, one day I'll do an episode on her, but on my dad's side of the family, the first woman to be sent out, the first person was sent out as a convict. Her name was Euphemia. Uh, she stole from her husband repeatedly. It's a crazy story. Ultimately, she did it so many times. She was Scottish um, that they sent her out to Australia for seven years and she was sent to what was called Cascades Female Factory and that's located in Tasmania. It was super hard work. Ultimately, long story short, she got her certificate of freedom after seven years and she married um, another convict and and now I'm speaking to you right now. <laughs> so you can kind of be thankful for the Brits for doing that, I guess. But her life was really hard and my dad's actually been to Cascades Female Factory and seen her name there and everything. So a lot of people were sent out and then stayed and Euphemia chose to stay in Australia um, after her time was up, even though she had nine kids back in <laughs> in Scotland. One joined her in Australia and she just kind of started it another family once she was out. So the trip would be really, really hard. People would get sick. They'd die on these six-month trips from Britain full of criminals out. My ancestor, I've read like all the surgeons, on onboard surgeons kind of notes and she did not get sick at all. <laughs> um, so ultimately in 1788, the British arrived on Norfolk Island and the first penal colony for Norfolk Island was established and this would be in operation until 1855. According to the island's official website, norfolkisland.com.au, quote, the glorious tropical ideal we see today was just was a place of nightmares for the convicts who served life sentences in this place that was known as hell in the Pacific, unquote. So Norfolk Island as a penal colony was brutal. In fact, people hoped to die, which I'll tell you about in a minute. There was no way off. It, there was no, there's no nearby islands to swim to. It was like Alcatraz in the South Pacific. And the punishment, the criminals that were sent here, um, the decree that was set down was if they were, they were first sent to the Australian mainland and if they were kept absconding or they misbehaved or they were just the worst of the worst, they would then send them to Norfolk Island as the final punishment. And they said it was for, quote, the worst description of convicts, unquote. They decreed at the time that, quote, every man should be worked in irons and Norfolk should be a place of the extremist punishment short of death, unquote. Today, you can actually, a lot of the landmarks on the island are the remains of the penal colonies. You can see these in various places across Australia, including Port Arthur in Tasmania, which was... It's now known as the site of Australia's biggest mass murder, the Port Arthur Massacre in 1996. But the reason that all those tourists were there was because they were visiting the penal colony um, remains because it was a popular tourist attraction in Port Arthur. And that's why he chose that spot. Lots of tourists, lots of tour buses coming in. And that's why a lot of people didn't run at the time because they thought it was a reenaction of 19th century penal colonies with guns and things. It's just terrible. Convicts on Norfolk Island were starved, tortured and flogged by their guards. According to the Daily Mail in 2019, quote, inmates spared hanging after an 1834 uprising reportedly wept at their fate while 13 convicts dropped to their knees in thanks to God when sentenced to their deaths, unquote. So people wanted to die. They, If you were spared hanging, they were all crying because they wished they were dead. That's how bad it was. Quote, isolation in an underground dumb cell was likened to being buried alive. On a good day, a convict would receive 680 grams of maize meal, 454 grams of salt meat, 907 grams of sweet potato, 284 grams of sugar, 14 grams of salt and a lemon, unquote. 
I guess the lemon was to stave off scurvy, I suppose. And you can still see the remains of these penal colony prisons and landmarks on the island. Many convicts are actually buried in the cemetery on the island and there's a number of World Heritage sites dotted across Norfolk Island. Now, just going back in time a bit, 6,000 kilometres east towards South America of Norfolk Island in the South Pacific is an island called Pitcairn Island. Now, a few years ago, if you're Australian, you'll remember Pitcairn was in the news because there was a lot of issues with child abuse and incest and things going on there. And I'm not going to get into that too much. But the reality is you will be thinking, how do these islands populate themselves um, if not inbred um, for a number of them. And I remember Pitcairn, there was a massive investigation into child abuse on Pitcairn Island. Um, And so today Pitcairn Island is actually a British overseas territory. It's made up of four different islands that are all volcanic. Physically, it's actually closer to South America than Australia and definitely closer to either than Britain. And the nearest area is French Polynesia. So it's around 2,000 kilometres from Tahiti. They're known as Pitcairn Islanders, the people from Pitcairn, and there's only 50 people who live on Pitcairn Islands and they consider themselves biracial. Their beginnings date back to something you may remember from a previous episode mention of, the mutiny on the bounty and the survivors of that taking on their Tahitian consorts. So we touched on the famous mutiny on the bounty story in the Sean Flynn episode part one where I discussed Errol Flynn um, in like Flynn or in like me as he put it, um, the Australian actor who went and made it big and was just a debauched, grotesque lech. Um, so if you remember on part one of that, Errol Flynn would regularly tell people that he was a descendant of people from the bounty, which became a famous book, movie and story, The Mutiny on the Bounty. So that's the only time it really ties into Errol Flynn. Um, I don't think he was at all, so we'll continue. But in short, I didn't touch on the story of the mutiny on the bounty in the Errol Flynn episode because it was kind of pointless too. But the HMS Bounty was a British ship whose crew, long story short, mutinied against their captain in 1789 while in the South Pacific. The mutineers would then settle on Tahiti um, or nearby Pitcairn Island and they would take on local lovers and consorts in the form of Tahitian women and they would essentially repopulate the island. Now, in 1814, the British would come across Pitcairn Island and by this point it had 46 inhabitants on it and there was only a few mutineers left at that time. Like, it's really interesting. You can read kind of the excerpts of when they arrived on Pitcairn and they found like these old men that had mutinied decades before. It's, It's crazy. So... Anyway, how does this tie in with Norfolk Island? Now, Norfolk Island was a penal colony until 1855. And the following year, when it was no longer a penal colony, but a British overseas territory still, in 1856, 196 of the now Pitcairn Islanders made the 6,000 kilometre journey to Norfolk Island and decided to settle there because they had kind of outgrown Pitcairn Island and its resources and Norfolk Island was now empty. So they made an agreement with the British government where they would resettle on Norfolk Island. So the people on Pitcairn Island voted on it and they all agreed to make this trip 6,000 kilometres west to then move to Norfolk Island. And so this is why a lot of the people who live on Norfolk today consider themselves descendants of the mutiny on the bounty because that's how it works. So by now, at this stage, it would become an Australian territory in the early 20th century and it would be handed over by the British to Australia. And today, as a result, many of the remaining residents on Norfolk Island are related. They have the same surnames. Keep that in mind for Janelle's story as I feel that this closed-off familial almost setup. And having a complete newcomer arrive and be murdered, you can kind of understand why their loyalties would lie with the people on the island and not with this, you know, this slut that's arrived on the island. That's kind of how I see it. 
Norfolkisland.com.au describes the landscape of the island. Quote, Norfolk Island offers all the things you love about the South Pacific and a whole lot more. Around every bend, you'll find a new surprise or twist that will make you rethink your notions of paradise. Our beaches are some of the Pacific's best, with impossibly clear waters sheltered by teeming coral reefs just a short swim from the sand. But you'll also discover moody cliffs where waterfalls tumble into the sea and dramatic head headlands with views that go on forever our culture too is unlike any other in the pacific proudly weaving together the dna of bounty mutant bounty mutineers and their polynesian families and as for food culture we've been enjoying organic produce and paddock to plate dining long before it became a thing when it comes to nature any of any old uh, any old island can grow coconut trees. Our island is home to the tallest fern trees on the planet and towering pines that tickle the underbellies of passing clouds, while our lush forests and offshore islands are sanctuaries to some of the world's rarest birds, unquote. So that pretty much explains the landscape. Norfolk Island is also unique in how its legal system works. It is an overseas territory of Australia, and while many of its... Uh, governmental setups are handled now on the Australian mainland. Norfolk Island has its own kind of court system. Um, it is the only non-mainland Australian territory to have limited self-governance, as they put it. They don't really have a lot of police or cops. There's no real need for it. But they have their own court, they have their own jury system if needed, but these things are never really needed, which is why it pissed off a lot of people when Janelle Patton's media circus came to town. According to sbs.com.au, quote, in 1979, it became Australia's first non-mainland territory to be granted limited self-rule. The island quickly instilled its own democratically elected legislative assembly, funding its own services, while Australia still retained ultimate sovereignty and final approval of proposed laws. Unquote. Now, since 2015, it's become more complex because Norfolk Island relies on tourism primarily and as much as some people can't seem to see it, they they need Australia. <laughs> they can't survive on their own. 2007, they were essentially bailed out because the global financial crisis screwed Norfolk Island real bad and they had to rely on Australia and as a result, they were kind of laws were changed where they were then granted, I was reading about how... <clears throat> We essentially have social security here if you're unemployed or you're looking for a job or you're disabled or something. It's called Centrelink. Before all this, Norfolk Islanders couldn't get access to that. But since then, they have been able to. And I was reading interviews with certain people on the islands who were saying if it wasn't for Australia, we'd all be dead, like we'd have starved to death kind of thing. And then there's other people who are like, fuck Australia, we're not Australians. Like they literally say that. And so, I mean, I don't know what they want and it's very complex, um, but Islanders have to pay Aussie tax now. That's kind of changed. Um, it's really interesting because the people on Norfolk Island now have to vote in Australian elections for a place that's 1,600 kilometres away that barely impacts them in any kind of way. They, A few years ago, they were automatically, because we have to legally vote in every election, state and federal and, and local, they were all registered a few years ago in the ACT registration electoral roll pool, which the ACT is where our capital of our country is, Canberra. It, it's literally, it's kind of like the Vatican in Italy. The ACT Australian Capital Territory falls within the state of New South Wales, where Sydney is, but it's its own territory. We have two territories and Canberra lies within that. It's tiny. It's just where the government is placed. So they were all automatically put on the electoral roll for the ACT. <laughs> so they have to vote for things that really don't affect them. Um, and they also, one of the benefits of becoming more part of Australia is that they're now covered by this thing called fair work and workers' compensation here, whereas they weren't before. So they couldn't there was no kind of higher power that could see if you were illegally, 
you know, sacked or or you were hurt on the job or anything like that, you could get workers' compensation. Now they do, and they've also got access to social security. But because the last murder on Norfolk Island before Janelle Patton happened over a century before Janelle's, in fact, 150 years before, a major crime case just wasn't something the island ever had to deal with. Sure, there'd be petty theft extremely rarely, the rare kind of home burglary, but no murders or anything that required a major police investigation. You'd be really stupid to do one because they know exactly who's on the island at any one time and the population is already tiny anyway. To this day, there has only been three murders on the island, not counting when it was a penal colony. From 1855 onwards, the first one was not long after that, and I don't have the details on that. It was 150 years ago. Then Janelle Patton in 2002. And then two years later in 2004, right before they arrested someone in the Janelle Patton case, a man called Leith Buffett. There's a lot of good names in this case, by the way. Like, stay tuned, because one of them's going to blow your mind. Leith Buffett, who was 25 at the time, he shot his dad um, dead. His dad was 60 and his dad was a member of Norfolk Island's Legislative Assembly. There was some sort of altercation between the two and he killed his dad. Now, he was declared mentally incompetent, but before that, he was sent to be in remand, essentially, because they only have two cells on the whole island for criminals and essentially anybody who's committed a major crime has to be flown to Sydney to serve their time in a bigger prison and so Leith Buffett went to Long Bay Jail which is the major one in Sydney um, and he was declared mentally unfit so I think he ended up in a psychiatric institution. So technically there's only been two that have been convicted and three murders in total. The island only has two police cells and it's usually just for drunk and disorderly and you're out in a few hours. In 2019, they were advertising for a jailer. They were asking if anyone from Australia wanted to come and work there and I read the job listing and it was the cruisiest job ever. It's like three-hour days. (laughs) You don't even have to be fit. You just sit there most of the time. There's really very little to do but... The thing is, you've got to move to Norfolk Island, I suppose. But it would suit the right person, I suppose. But crime here in any respect is so rare that people regularly leave their their homes unlocked and their car doors unlocked. Janelle's murder would turn the quiet life that many of those on Norfolk Island led upside down. And add to that the media and police presence, and in my opinion, this all did not help the investigation. Janelle Patton was a really complex woman, as a lot of people put it. And I mean, I get it. I'm a complex person and it's better than being ordinary, as a lot of people say, you know. But she had a lot of faults and I I don't believe she was at the age where she kind of owned them. Um, and neither was I until until maybe in my 30s. And unfortunately, Janelle didn't kind of get to that point where you make these kind of dodgy decisions about people you get involved with and things like that and then years later you look back and you go what the hell was I thinking or that was so dangerous or that was so stupid and you beat yourself up over it but I don't think Janelle had had the distance from this place or the ability to she hadn't reached the age where you can look back and go all right like you know you see people doing it who are younger, making the same choices you made, and you're like, I wish I could just tell you how this almost ruined my life. <laughs> Janelle was known as outgoing from the get-go. She always was. She was somewhat of a perfectionist at work. She was a really hard worker. She worked at a place called the Castaway Hotel on Norfolk Island. She was super physically active. She went for daily walks and runs. She She went to the gym on the island. She... Uh, was in a rowing team with a bunch of women that she was friendly with. Um, she loved the outdoors. And so Norfolk Island really was a really good match for her. She met lots of friends, men and women, and she had an active social life on the island. And she she really got there knowing no one and built in two and a half years a, a full circle of people. As, you know, a lot of people would point out later, unfortunately, this web would maybe be to her detriment. Visitors to the island and who stayed at the hotel where she worked as a restaurant manager loved her. She was super bubbly, friendly. Um, People on Norfolk Island speak English. 
everyone, but they also have like a local dialect that some people speak, which is more kind of the Polynesians, um, and that's called Norfolk. So Janelle was also known as speaking her mind. I hate the word bossy. Um, it's dumb. It only applies to women. You never call a man bossy. This is one thing that annoys me. But she spoke her mind. She was really forthright, as they put it. And she wasn't afraid to stick up for herself, which is a really admirable quality. You don't want to kind of just cower and, you know, you've, you have to stick up for yourself because you have to get your way through life. You are all you have, as someone put it to me once. There was a writer called Tim Latham. He's an Australian journalist. There was two that when her murder happened would go to Norfolk Island and do extensive investigations and they were interviewed by Dateline and one of them is Tim Latham. Um, And he said, quote, she was a forthright woman who spoke her mind and that didn't sit well with the community where you have to get along with people, unquote. So this is a community where almost everyone knows everyone and if you don't know them well, you've probably seen them around I moved to a village just outside of Oxford where I lived that had 10,000 people and everyone knew everyone's business. And I used to say to people like my friends that I met there, oh, I'm just not used to this because I'm from Melbourne and this just doesn't happen in a big city. And I didn't, it didn't sit comfortably with me, you know, that everyone would be in the bar, in the pub gossiping about other people, like get a life. Um, But that's kind of what their whole mindset is in a lot of these places. Did you hear what, you know, so-and-so did? Did you hear what so-and-so did? Bitching about people and then you'd see them run into that person and that guy I love and it's like um, you just said that she was a C word. So it's kind of like that. But most people, you're not going to know everyone on an island of 2000. There's always going to be different demographics. A lot of people on Norfolk Island are older. um, So but Janelle found her kind of click she rented a cottage from her landlords, Ruth, Ruth McCoy and Foxy McCoy. My favourite name of all time. <laughs> I was like, I think it's better than Muff Graham, you know, the Mac and Muff Graham episode that I did where I, I just, Muff Graham, amazing. Foxy McCoy. Um, that's when I go missing. That's the new name I've taken on guys. So you can look for me under that name. So she rented a cottage from these landlords that were apparently lovely. They lived in the building in front of hers, the house in front of hers. She, she was a great tenant. Um, and these are two women, I believe, because Foxy McCoy would see her that morning that she was killed. But Janelle was not perfect. And later her diary and local gossip would expose her secrets Janelle wrote in a diary for years and years and years every single day and Janelle would open up to this diary I guess and she would name names which when she was murdered it would be readily found in her cottage. Janelle would have many relationships with men on the island. Um, She would be known for having affairs a few with married men. She'd been there for two and a half years and I always thought that it was the headlines were a bit, I I used to think, oh, it couldn't be that many. I bet it's like one or two men on the whole island ever and they've been a bit hard on her. But when you kind of look into it, there was a lot and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is when you continually continuously end relationships acrimoniously, as her friends put it, the few friends she kind of had left, they would say that Janelle's relationships would always end acrimoniously. There was never like long-term relationships, which is something that, and friendships, which I did notice because there's so few of her friends, long-term or short-term, that spoke out saying how wonderful she was at the time she died. And I think it's because she ended so many relationships badly. Um, So, a lot of them were single men she'd have relationships with. Um, she was outgoing. She was bubbly. They they heard about this pretty Australian who lived on the island and, you know, why wouldn't you? However, many would say that when the affair ran its course, which Brian Bruce's documentary talks about, that Janelle would get very clingy and she'd get quite pissy that it was over and the men kind of wouldn't be able to extricate themselves from the situation, especially if they were married And one time Janelle had a confrontation with a woman in a bar, but 
Brian Bruce's documentary says this was because she'd had an affair with the woman's husband, whereas NBC Dateline says that Janelle had a confrontation with a woman in a bar because the woman was married. Janelle had found out she was having an affair and Janelle was like taking the moral high ground and bitching at the woman for cheating on her husband, which doesn't seem right because Janelle was doing things like that. So why, why would you be bitching at someone when you're guilty of that. It's like people in glass houses kind of thing. So Janelle's friend Steve Borg would confirm that Janelle was this type of person. She was clingy. He said, quote, she was like a heat-seeking scud missile. Often she locked, once she locked onto something, that was it, unquote. So NBC Dateline goes over quite a lot of the details of different relationships that Janelle would have on the island. And later on, there would be an inquest a couple of years after her death. But uh, it the inquest happened actually before they would find someone and arrest them for Janelle's murder. Basically, they should have held off a little bit on the inquest, I believe. But the inquest would uncover all of this but her diary was really speaking from the grave about things that had gone on. She wrote in great detail and named people in it. And maybe that's a really good thing to do, you know, not only for mental health journaling, but to cover yourself, which is really bad. According to Dateline, quote, Janelle's words told investigators the vivid details of her contentious relationship with local widower Jap Mangetti. There's another name for you, Jap Mangetti. The next one coming up is going to blow your mind, 20 years her senior. Mengeti was raising four grieving children who were none too happy when Janelle began dating their father and then moved in. Janelle wrote bluntly about loathing Jack's 16-year-old daughter, Donna. The feeling was mutual. After they broke up, Janelle wrote in her diary that Jap once spat on her and, quote, told me he's my first enemy on Norfolk. But the father-daughter pair weren't the only people police were investigating, so there we go. We have a number of potential murderers before we get into Janelle's murder at all. And ultimately there'd be dozens of suspects. And this is why it's just impossible to narrow it down. Although it is possible. I just think that people aren't cooperating and giving over their DNA and then we'd have the answer. So I have a lot of issues with that. Like if this 16 year old girl's lost her mum, it's terrible. And I was so lucky to have like a stepmom that's amazing. I still do. So few people get that. And I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life, but my stepmom has been like a consistent for me. She's amazing. And I never understand why women come into a man's life and hate their fucking kids. Just choose a man with no kids then or stay alone. Because I've always thought if I ended up with men with kids, I'd... I'd love them like they were my own because I, I, I had a great stepmother and it's not the kid's fault. But then you add on top of that the fact that she's lost her mum and Janelle's saying she loathes her. 16-year-olds can be really bitchy, impossible, moody. I was. But I never really gave my stepmom hell and I never gave my mum's boyfriend's hell either. But I just didn't really like that about Janelle and, like, it, it, it sucks. But then I also don't like the fact that if it's true, Jap spat on her and said he's – she wrote in her diary that he said to her, "You're my fir- I'm your first enemy on Norfolk Island, which is really like fighting words. So he would have probably been like almost 50 or something uh, when they started the relationship and I guess Janelle lived with her for a while and I don't know when that relationship ended but I think it was a fair while before her murder. The next one was another ex-boyfriend and his name is Laurie Quintle, but he goes by Bucket. So that's what I'm going to call him from now on and try to keep a straight face when I'm talking about serious stuff. Bucket is a descendant of one of the Bounty Mutineers. A lot of people are really proud of that. Him and Janelle went out for several months. Janelle was looking for a long-term relationship. Bucket was not. They had a really Rocky breakup with Janelle was really clingy and Bucket would later admit during the investigation that they had an argument about a month before Janelle's murder that turned violent. It was around Valentine's Day and it was in Janelle's cottage and Janelle had actually kept a note that she'd written to Bucket after the fight, I guess for him to find when he left for work or something. And the note said, quote, look, Bucket, I'm sore, I'm bruised big time. I'm devastated by everything you said and did to me last night, unquote. So like Bucket 
was potentially violent, but the police would find no evidence, physical or otherwise, that would embroil either him, Jap or Bucket, I can't believe I'm saying these names, in Janelle's killing. Um, there's no nothing linking them. The police often say 16 suspects, they narrowed it down to 16 alibis, which an alibi can be anyone, <laughs> especially if it's your wife. Um, so there was another man who was a confidant of Janelle's on the island, Greg Magri, but there was no evidence that he kind of had anything to do with it. So there's a lot of different people and I'll talk about kind of more of that on part two. But this brings us to Easter 2002, the end of March. Janelle was super excited because despite all of this turmoil in her life, work was really good, but also her parents were coming to see her for Easter on Norfolk Island. I presume she'd seen them, maybe she went home every six months or something and took a break, but she was super close to them and so they were coming to visit her. And on Easter Saturday 2002, which was March 30th, her parents arrived on Norfolk Island, flew in from Sydney, and they came to her work and according to Brian Bruce's documentary, they kind of turned up at her work and surprised her and she hugged them and ran over and she she announced to the whole dining hall, these are my parents, they've flown in from Sydney and she was super excited to see them. And they said at the time that she looked happier and healthier than they'd ever seen her. So Janelle would work this morning shift um, regularly at the Castaway Hotel and then she'd knock off work and she'd be able to kind of do her thing and I guess sometimes she'd do a split shift so she'd come back later um, and so she knocked off work that day and that afternoon and into the evening, she toured her parents around the island and showed them all the different spots and things like that. And then she kissed him goodbye and she said, tomorrow morning I've got work, Easter Sunday, and then I'm going to knock off work and I'll pick you up between 1 and 2 p.m. We'll spend the day and evening together and we'll have a lovely time. And that was the end of that. Her parents were booked in at a hotel kind of self-service department on the island and they went to bed and Janelle went home to her cottage. The following morning, she woke up really early and she had her early morning shift starting at the Castaway Hotel Easter Sunday. Um, and as far as Janelle's parents knew, she was doing that and then she would pick them up at 1 and 2, between 1 and 2. Now, 1 p.m. rolled around and then 2 p.m. rolled around and then 3 p.m. rolled around and Carol Patton would say to Dateline NBC that she started getting like ticked off. She was annoyed. They had flown from Sydney all this way and all this cost and Janelle was just dicking them around and they thought maybe she, they kind of tried to rationalise it like, oh, she's living this island life now and she doesn't care much about time and stuff in the way that you would rationalise it. You never think something major is going to happen. So they ultimately, after a few hours waiting, they taped a note to their apartment door saying, Janelle, we'll be down at the beach, you know, come down once you get here. And they went to the beach. And then hours later, they return or an hour or two later, they return and the note's still on the door and there's no Janelle. So they then go to Janelle's cottage and there's no answer at the door. And they have a chat to um, Foxy McCoy, her landlord, uh, who's an older woman. And she she would say that she saw her earlier that morning, which I'll get into in a minute, and everything seemed normal. So they drove around the entire island in, I guess, a rental car looking for Janelle. I guess it'd be horrible. It's a small island. It's 35 square kilometres. I mean, it's eight by five. It's It's quite thin, but it's long. But you're not really sure because a lot of this is, is long grass and, you know, I described it earlier, thick forest and then there's the beach. Where, where do you start looking when you're not familiar with the island? So by this stage, Foxy McCoy said that maybe Janelle had had some sort of accident. That's all they could think, that she'd, she'd had a medical episode or she'd been hit by a car or, or she'd fallen off something while she was out walking because she had gone for her morning walk after work that day. Ultimately, they would learn that Janelle had turned up and she'd done her shift from 7am till 11am at the Castaway Hotel. And then she went to do a very small shop at a, the nearby grocery store. A security camera picks her up, which you can see. And then she returns home with her groceries. She puts them on the bench in order to, when she gets gets home later, 
it's non-perishable stuff. So she just leaves it there to unpack later, which they would find when they entered her apartment later. And then at around 11.30am, she always went for a morning walk, whether it was an hour or so, and she'd walk the same kind of roads and things like that. And she'd often be seen by people and people who knew her and Foxy McCoy would often see her. And, and that morning, Foxy McCoy saw Janelle leaving her her cottage for her daily walk at 11.30, which adds up, you know, do an hour's walk, come home, have a shower, and then she'd be at her parents and have a nice day with them by 1, 2pm, you know. But then as they were looking for Janelle, what had been a kind of nice day, the skies opened and as locals on Norfolk Island say, when it rains, it really rains and it's like monsoonal rain on Norfolk Island and there's a huge torrential downpour and still no Janelle and they were like, what the hell is going on? So they went down to the very basic police station, which half the time isn't even manned, and you have to call them in order to get the cop who's on the island to come. And they provided kind of a description of Janelle and said, look, at our daughter that we're visiting, she's 29, long brown hair, she works at the Castaway Hotel, um, fit, she went for a walk, last seen, no one's seen her. And the police were like, okay, so a body just now at like 6.15pm, just a few minutes before they'd arrived at the police station, has just been found of a woman um, a few miles from Janelle's home in an off the main road picnic area that's quite picturesque. Um, and the body had been wrapped in black plastic sheeting, something a, a tradesman or a contractor would use, kind of thick black plastic sheeting, almost like a tarp. And Carol Patton would tell Dateline NBC, quote, he said that a body of a young woman was found just at 6.15pm by tourists and said, we need to identify the body before we go on any further. And once I heard that, I just, I just knew it was her because, I mean, Norfolk Island, two young women aren't going to go missing in one day, unquote. And they did identify her and it was Janelle. Two detectives had to be flown out from Sydney because Norfolk Island just doesn't have the skilled homicide detectives that the mainland has. And when the forensic pathologist that was also sent out, who had done over 2,000 autopsies, looked at Janelle's body, he determined that this was a out-of-control, sustained and vicious attack. This was no accident. What had happened to Janelle Patton? Janelle had over around 64 in, distinct injuries, including stab wounds and beatings to her body. She'd suffered a broken pelvis and she had a fractured skull. And she, it seemed to them, um, she had been killed elsewhere and then dumped in that particular spot where she was found. But the issue was it had rained so torrentially that afternoon that even though they had the tarpaulin and they had Janelle's clothes and things like that, they were worried that a lot of it had been washed away. So this forensic pathologist, his name's Dr. Ellen Carla, he said, quote, there were cuts to the face, to the neck, to the front and back of the torso, to the arms and to the legs. She'd put up quite a hell of a struggle in trying to disarm her attacker, unquote. Now, while he was looking over her body, and I do believe they did a very thorough investigation, they sent off everything to the lab, they they left no stone unturned. Dr. Carla found a lot of kind of forensic evidence that to this day is important. He found glass fragments within the tarpaulin and kind of in Janelle. He found flecks of paint on Janelle's clothing. Now, she was wearing her clothing, it was shorts and a tank top and things like that. And they talk about it and show them on the Brian Bruce documentary. Now, Janelle's shorts had been sliced either by scissors or a knife down the side. So if you're wearing shorts, essentially the parts that hold it to your body right down the sides, the, the hem down the side had been sliced through. So essentially if she stood up, they would fall off. So it looks like she had been... It had been done when she was incapacitated on the ground because if she stood up, they would have just fallen off her body. But she had not been sexually assaulted. That was determined. Her shorts and her underwear had been sliced through and her shirt all had also had what looked like slice marks through it. But 
unfortunately with that downpour, even though they sent it to Sydney and to the lab and were very careful with the analysis, they feel that they lost a lot in that downpour. But what was left is really important. The evidence, including the black plastic sheeting, which is really central, was sent for testing. So now for the police putting together the Janelle's final movements was obviously key. So that morning after Foxy McCoy saw Janelle leaving for her morning walk at 11.30am, a few minutes after that, Janelle was spotted by a woman called Jodie Williams who knew her from the island. Janelle had a baby, um, sorry, Jodie had a baby and she was trying to get it to sleep and as a lot of parents do, she was driving around with the child trying to get it to sleep and she would do a loop of the island so that, and it would fall asleep in the back of the car and she was doing a circuit of a block that came down Rudy Hill Road which is where Janelle would walk and then she would do a, a loop and she'd come back around um, and she saw Janelle on the first go over and as she came back five minutes later uh, there was no sign of Janelle anywhere where there should have been she should have still been walking along that road so whatever happened happened in that five minutes now on the side of the road investigators would find a clue it was a pair of broken sunglasses that were identified as Janelle's because there had been a photo taken the day before her murder where it looked like she was wearing them And then they spoke to some people who had been playing golf around the time that Janelle seemingly vanished off that road during that walk at around 11.30am. Something that two people playing golf locals had heard that morning around that time. Now, the golf course is not far from where Janelle was last seen, uh, just kind of below it. And they'd heard, according to NBC Dateline, a blood-curdling scream. The other journalist, um, other than Tim Latham, who was sent to cover this, the Australian journalist was a guy called Roger Maynard, and he told NBC Dateline, quote, it was a scream that lasted for about a minute and it was so loud apparently that somebody thought it was the reverse thrust of an engine of a plane landing at Norfolk Island Airport, unquote. So, yeah. So... Also, coincidentally, when they would enter her apartment and not really find anything amiss, they would find her diary and what I talked about earlier, her different relationships, things like this, and this would be like a goldmine for investigators. But they did notice that Janelle, who had written in this diary daily for years and years and years, and it was a it was a ritual of hers that she did every day, the only time that entry stopped was a month before her murder, she just stopped writing in her diaries completely. Now, I believe that they just think she stopped, not that a diary was stolen or anything like that, because I believe that her diary still had pages in it. And it just seemed like something had happened where Janelle no longer wanted to write, whether she was depressed and she was covering it up and she just didn't have that. She just didn't want to anymore, whether she'd been busy, whether she just didn't fancy it, whether she'd been busy at work and just couldn't be bothered. But it does seem like an interesting thing that most people who journal, it's part of like their everyday well-being that they do it and it's this ritual and it grounds them. And that would be habitual for Janelle. And then for it suddenly just to stop, they found that very interesting. And that's where I'm going to leave it for part one. Part two will go into the investigation into what happened to Janelle Patton, a subsequent arrest, and a lot of issues that people have with that arrest. So stay tuned and I will be back in a few days, most likely, for part two. Thanks.